You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Our focus tonight will be verses 19 to 21, but I'll read beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, and giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who does, or he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus, and we thank you for its relevance and practicality for us in church today. We ask that, again that your spirit would guide us as we consider this passage. We pray that we would take seriously this admonition to walk in wisdom, to walk in a circumspect manner, to seek by your grace that presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that we may navigate in the church and outside of the church in a way that is well-pleasing in your sight. Do forgive us for all of our sins and unrighteousness, and again, guide us by the Spirit, and we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. 
So the doctrinal section in the book of Ephesians is in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3 is a bit of a transition. And then chapters 4 to 6, the emphasis is on practical Christian living. So in 4.1, he tells us that we're to walk in a manner that is consistent with our high calling in Christ Jesus. In 4.17, he tells us we're not supposed to walk the way that the Gentiles walk. And then in chapter 5, at verse 1, he says we're to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says we're to walk in light. And here in chapter 5 and verse 15, he tells us we're to walk in wisdom. So that's the particular context we find ourselves in tonight. Notice specifically in Ephesians chapter 5 at verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. He goes on to say, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And the way that we understand what the will of the Lord is, it isn't esoteric. It isn't mysterious. It's not a tune out and tune in. It is rather to search the scriptures. We've got plenty of wisdom in the Bible communicated by the spirit to us for our growth and maturation in the things of God. And then he gives a prohibition specifically in verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine. It seems a bit out of place, and commentators have wondered why the insertion here of this particular prohibition. Again, generally, there is an admonition. We're not supposed to be drunk with wine. This isn't the only place in the Bible that condemns drunkenness, and it's certainly one in addition to those others. But here I think the idea is a controlling influence. Those who are drunk with wine end up engaged in dissipation. The contrast is to be filled with the Spirit. So he says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, it won't be dissipation that results, but it will rather be these four particular things that the apostle mentions. Notice the instruction of others in 19a. Second, the praise given to God, 19b. Third, the gratitude to God in verse 20. And then finally, submission to others in verse 21. So if we're drunk with wine, the net effect is dissipation. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the net effect is, is that we'll speak to one another in a particular way. We'll praise our God in our hearts. We will be thankful to our God and we will submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. As one man says concerning alcohol and the spirit, both involve the self coming under the control of an external power. Charles Hodge says, and as drunkenness produces rioting and debauchery, so the Holy Spirit produces a joy which expresses itself in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And again, when we ask the question, what does it mean to be filled with the, 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 the Spirit? We've already been sealed by the Spirit, according to Ephesians 1 at verse 13. When we come to faith in our Lord Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit as a seal and as a guarantee of our final redemption. We have the Spirit in us. Now, when he says, be filled with the Spirit, I think the idea is to seek more of his presence and more of his power in your life. Doesn't necessarily mean go speak in tongues and prophesy and raise dead people. It simply means to know more of his presence and power in your life. And then when we compare the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, you can turn there. I think the two statements sort of define one another. So in Colossians 3, we see a very similar em emphasis, specifically in verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Notice, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. 
So in Ephesians 5, we're filled with the Spirit, and then we teach and admonish in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here in Colossians 3.16, the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly in all wisdom, it results in us teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I think the two help us to understand each other. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's to have the Word of Christ dwelling in our hearts. What does it mean to have the Word of Christ being, uh, dwelling in our hearts? It means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So as we come to this particular passage now, I want to look at the manifestation or the effects of the Spirit's presence in the lives of God's people. So we'll start first with verse 19a and the, uh, the instruction of others. So notice, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. How do we know somebody is filled with, with the Spirit? Because they will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, when we come to this particular passage, there's a lot to consider by way of just a general approach. In the first place, the speaking to one another is the horizontal aspect of Christian worship. I don't believe 5, 19 to 21 is confined to corporate worship, but it certainly includes and involves corporate worship. So when we come and we open up our books of praise unto God and we sing, we are proclaiming God's excellencies to one another. As well, we are praising God, which we'll see as we move through this list of characteristics of those who have the Spirit. And as well, it is a prayer. Any good hymn, any good psalm is also a prayer, things that we ought to ponder as we return them unto God in a singing capacity. So praise, proclamation, and prayer is the function involved in singing. So the speaking to one another here in 19a is the horizontal aspect of worship. The next clause, the singing and making melody in your heart, is the vertical aspect of worship. So the praise and the prayer unto God and the proclamation as we sing good words to our God, but for the benefit of others. We're supposed to hear ourselves. In fact, speaking to yourself is the emphasis in the King James, but speaking to one another, these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the content as to what is to be sung. And psalm simply means a song of praise, a psalm. It's used in the New Testament of Old Testament psalms. A hymn is a song with religious content, hymn or song of praise, especially in honor of a deity. And then a song in our literature, this is just from a, a dictionary of the Greek language used in the New Testament, song. In our literature, only a sacred song, a song of praise to God. So those are the three words that we find here. But if you've done any study in scripture, and many of you have come out of churches where psalms only were what sung in public worship, you'll know that some apply the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs here to the Psalter itself. Now, the first time I preached this passage many, many years ago, I did not do that. This time around, I've uh, dug down a little bit deeper, and there is merit to that particular argument, that the three terms used here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, refer to the psalms of David, refers to that collection of the Bible that we have right about in the middle, 150 of them. And I want to offer up three arguments as to why we should see it this way. First, the lexical argument, the meaning of the words used by Paul. Secondly, the theological argument, this inspiration Notice when he speaks concerning spiritual songs. I think we just look at spiritual there as the type or the kind. I think the argument is better. It's the origin. These songs come from the Spirit. 
They don't come from Hillsong. They don't come from Isaac Watts. They don't come from William Cooper. They come from the Spirit himself. And then the third argument will be contextual. It is intriguing that when the apostle here says, uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, having been uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, the parallel is that we let the word of Christ richly dwell in our hearts and we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, the Psalms of David are excellent content for that very purpose and for that very reason. But let's first pick up on the lexical argument, the identification of the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, as you might guess, the Psalter itself in Hebrew uses these three terms for itself. The superscriptions, typically that's offset in the New King James. When I read that superscription, that's inspired Hebrew text. That's the first verse in the Hebrew Bible. So the superscriptions often use these terms synonymously. You've got psalm, you've got hymn, and you've got song or spiritual song. When you have the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we call that the Septuagint. I had mentioned recently that it's also called the LXX or the 70, because tradition says it was 70 men that worked on that particular translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into a Greek version of that. Well, the same sort of a thing. We have the word psalms and hymns and songs. And those terms in the titles to the various psalms are utilized. For instance, psalm occurs in the titles of 67 of the psalms of David. Hymn occurs in the titles of six of the psalms. And then song occurs in the titles of 36 of the psalms. In our Bible, specifically Psalm 76, the psalm that I read at the outset of worship, in the Septuagint, or the Greek translation, all three terms are utilized in that superscription. So the idea that psalms and hymns and spiritual songs at first glance would only refer to the book of Psalms seems a bit odd. Well, it only seems odd if you've been living in the 20th century because men prior to the 20th century interpreted it that way. Men prior to our particular time understood it that way. And I'm going to quote a couple of them in just a moment. But when it comes to the use of him, for instance, in the New Testament, there's a couple places that we ought to be aware of. Turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I think I've explained to you before that in conjunction with the Passover supper, there was this sort of an approach to how you worshiped and how you conducted yourself. And there was the singing of the songs of Hallel. And basically that would have been Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. So in Matthew 26 at verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, the hymn there is the songs of Hallel. It's between 113 and 118. It wouldn't have been Hillsong. It wouldn't have been Cooper. It wouldn't have been Isaac Watts. It wouldn't have been John, uh, Charles Wesley. It wouldn't have been modern hymnody. They would have sang what they always sang at the Passover meal. They would have sang the Psalms of David. And when D Jesus co-ops this into the Lord's Supper, he gives that confirmation of its binding authority in the worship of God Almighty in this new covenant era. 
Turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, another use of the word him. Not him, H-I-M, but him, H-Y-M-N. Notice specifically in Acts 16 at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Again, this wasn't stuff we have in the Trinity hymnal. What do you think those men had in their minds that they had oftentimes used in the worship of God? Probably the Psalms of David, probably those Psalms that they grew up on, those, those Psalms that they sang in synagogue, those Psalms that they had introduced in the singing to churches. So when they sing Psalms and, or, or, or hymns here to God, it's referring to the Psalms of David. And then going back to our particular text, again, these three terms all refer to the book of Psalms. John Gill makes this observation. He says, by Psalms are meant the Psalms of David and others which compose the book that goes by that name. Everybody agrees David didn't write all of the Psalms, but we refer to them as the Psalms of David because he's sort of the man to make sure that everything that went in there was orthodox and was God-honoring and was theologically sound. Just like in the New Testament, not every man that wrote a New Testament book is an apostle. But they were apostolic men. They were under the, the control of those apostles so that when Mark and Luke write and they contribute canonical writings to the New Testament, they're not doing it willy-nilly. They're doing it under the supervision of Paul in the case of Mark, uh, or Luke rather, and uh, Peter in the case of Mark. So these non-apostolic men are nevertheless apostolic men. So the sons of Korah and Ethan and the various men that compose psalms, they're un, under ultimately the control of David. And I don't mean control the way a tyrant controls, but he is the, the man that introduced, or rather the man that secured what went into the book of Psalms. So Gil again, he says, for other psalms there are none, and by hymns we are to understand, not such as are made by good men without the inspiration of the Spirit of God, since they are placed between psalms and spiritual songs, made by men, inspired by the Holy Ghost, and are put upon a level with them, and to be sung along with them, to the edification of churches. But these are only another name for the book of psalms, the running title of which may as well be the book of hymns. Thomas Manton says the same thing. He says, the learned observe, these are the express titles of David's psalms. Mizmorim, which is the, uh, the, the Hebrew word, Tehillim and Shirim, which the Septuagint translates Psalmoi, Humnoi, and Odai, or Ode. That's where we get our English word. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And seem to recommend to us the book of David's psalms. Now, there was something called the Scottish uh, uh, Book of Psalms, the Scottish Psalter, which is a metrical version of the Psalms. It's still available, Trinitarian Bible Society. You can get a nice little hardback one. Well, in the original, or rather in this one that was published in 1673, I think it first came out in 1650, and then there were other editions that followed. But in the 1673 one, Malcolm Watts makes this observation. He says, a Puritan preface was included in an edition of the Scottish Metrical Psalter published in 1673. It was signed by Thomas Manton, John Owen, William Jenkin, Thomas Watson, Thomas Lew, Matthew Poole, Matthew Mead, Thomas Vincent, Edmund Calamy, James Janeway, Richard Mayo, and 16 others. I'm not saying this because, oh, we should just join their team. I'm simply suggesting that prior to the 20th century, it was pretty commonplace that psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs referred to the book called the Psalms of David. 
But then he goes on to say, these Puritans all subscribe to these words, quote, to us, David's psalms seem plainly intended by those terms of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which the apostle uses in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. Now, there will be say, some that say, well, then that, Paul's just saying, sing psalms and psalms and psalms. But that's what the Bible does in a lot of places. We, we just read it in Deuteronomy chapter 11. We're to obey God's commandments. We're to obey God's statutes. We're to obey God's laws. What's the difference? Well, they all refer to that mandate from God that we're supposed to imbibe. Oftentimes, the Old Testament, and perhaps in the New Testament, I can't think of a place right now, but it talks about our sin and our iniquity and our transgression. Huh, kind of like three terms that emphasize the same specific thing. And then you have it very clearly in the New Testament when you see these references to miracles, wonders, and signs in Acts 2.22, and then again in 2 Corinthians 12.12 and Hebrews 2.4. So that there are three terms applying to the one book, it's not uncommon, it's not strange, it's something that that book does itself in the Hebrew language. It's something that that book does itself when it's translated into Greek, and we call it the Septuagint. Those three terms are applied to the Psalms of David. Now, with reference to this, the apostle assumes that the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae had at their disposal a collection of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Remember, these churches were relatively new. Paul probably writes Ephesians at around A.D. 60 to 62. So the Christian church, now I would date it back to Abel as being the first justified by God's grace through faith. Even Adam and Eve, God took that, the, the animal and killed it and took the skin and covered and, and atoned for the sins of Adam and Eve. So I'm not suggesting the church just emerged in the new covenant. There is that, that church of God's faithful people. But in terms of the, you know, the establishment formally of local churches, at the resurrection of Jesus, we have his marching orders to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptize those disciples, and then teach those disciples. Guess where all that happens? It happens in the church. You make the disciples, you baptize the disciples, and then you teach the disciples. So you've got about a 30-year span there before the apostle Paul writes Ephesians. Well, he assumes, again, that this somewhat relatively new body of people, this somewhat new, relatively, a relatively new body of believers has at their disposal a book through which or with which they're able to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then turn back to Ephesians 4, specifically at verse 11. It's intriguing. Now, the argument could be made, well, he's only talking about the teaching office here. But singing is teaching. Singing truth is teaching and admonishing one another. Notice in Ephesians 4, verse 11, we've already considered this passage. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The church, I mean, we use the, the, the language of, well, he's a youth pastor, he's an executive pastor, he's the, the lead pastor. That's not how the Bible trucks. The Bible just says pastor 
or elder or bishop. Those are synonymous terms for the, for the one office that has as its function ruling and, and, and teaching and preaching. So the Bible as well doesn't have, you know, pastor of music, pastor of composition, pastor that, that composes the odes that, that the church is going to sing. When Christ ascends on high, when Christ leads captivity captive, when Christ gives gifts to the church, those gifts are charged with preaching and teaching his word, not composing songs, not you know, engaging in, in new spiritual ditties to celebrate the glory of God most high. So that's the lexical argument. The three terms in Hebrew refer to the Psalter. The three terms in Greek refer to the Psalter. The second argument is theological. Look back at the text, specifically in 519. It says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, and notice that word, spiritual songs. Now the word spiritual modifies songs, but it could modify psalms and hymns as well. That is a perfectly legitimate way to translate. We could understand spiritual psalms, spiritual hymns, or spiritual songs, or and spiritual songs. The modifier spiritual, again, doesn't set it apart from a tune that you might sing at the bar. Rather, it indicates or underscores the origin of that particular composition. In other words, it is given by the Spirit. It does not refer to the type of the song, but rather to the origin of the song. And if we ask the lexicon, which is simply the, the big word for dictionary, I guess it's not any bigger than dictionary, when we ask the word, uh, uh, what does the word spiritual mean, here's what BDAG says. In the great majority of cases, in reference to the divine spirit, having to do with the divine spirit, caused by or filled with the divine spirit, pertaining or corresponding to the divine spirit. So the spiritual songs there again doesn't just set that song off from a nursery rhyme. It rather underscores the origin of that song. In fact, B.B. Warfield explains it this way. He says, of the 25 instances in which the word occurs in the New Testament, in no single case does it sink, sink even as low in its reference as the human spirit. And in 24 of them is derived from Panuma or the Holy Spirit. In this sense of belonging to or determined by the Holy Spirit. L listen to that language, brethren. If you've ever read this and you thought spiritual songs, well, you know, that's Rich Mullins or that, that's Keith Green. Those aren't nursery rhymes. It's not Led Zeppelin. It's not Metallica. There's something about that spiritual song. It, it, it's just different. It's in a different class. It's a different kind. It's a different category. That's not Paul's point. Spiritual songs originate from the spirit. Spiritual songs come from the spirit. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a book that contained those spiritual songs that came from the Spirit? We actually do. It's called the Psalms of David. So back to, to, to Warfield. In this sense of belonging to or determined by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament usage is uniform with one single exception of Ephesians 6.12, where it seems to refer to the higher, though superhuman intelligences. He says the appropriate translation for it in each case is spirit-given or spirit-led or spirit-determined. So again, the lexical argument, all three terms used in Hebrew and used in Greek apply to the Psalms of David. But this theological argument is weighty. This theological argument is powerful. These are songs that come from the Holy Spirit himself. 
uh, John Gill says, and by spiritual songs are meant the same Psalms of David, and which are called spiritual because they are indicted. And that simply means to compose or write by the Spirit of God. They consist of spiritual matter and are designed for spiritual edification and are opposed to all profane, loose, and wanton songs. So he does make a distinction in terms of class or category or type. They're not bar songs. They're not nursery rhymes. Again, it's not Zeppelin or, or, or Metallica. So he makes that distinction, but the emphasis lies on the origin of the Spirit. These songs come from the Spirit of God. These songs are authorized by the Spirit of God for use in the churches, and that, I think, is the meaning here. And then one other place where we see this word psalm used is in 1 Corinthians 14. We should make sure we observe that. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, specifically at verse 26. It says, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. So it just sort of sounds like the people of God show up and somebody has a psalm, somebody has a tongue, somebody has a prophesying, and they all just sort of let flow in the context of the church. Well, the psalm there could be the Psalms of David. The people of God, even in Corinth, would have been exposed to the Psalter. They would have been exposed to the Old Testament. They would have had that authorized book of God in the Psalms for them to sing. But as well, look at the context. The spiritual gifts, the charismatic gifts are off the charts there in Corinth. And just like we'd want to minimize somebody in our church talking in tongues or, or sharing a prophecy or giving us some insight into the mind of the Lord, so we ought to be cautious about somebody just composing together a psalm and sharing it in the corporate worship. John Cotton made the observation the gift of psalms, which the apostle speaks of, was not an ordinary gift to compile some spiritual ditty in verse, but extraordinary as joined with the gift of strange tongues. I don't know that we'd want to go to 1 Corinthians 14, 26 as our proof text for uninspired hymnody. Because that's not what's happening. Likely, they would have had the Psalms of David, but even possibly, they would have had direct influence by the Spirit. Again, Malcolm Watts makes the observation. 1 Corinthians 14.26 must refer to the canonical Psalms or to the supernatural and immediate products of the Spirit's working. Either way, it provides no warrant for the introduction of uninspired hymns. So what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 isn't the proof text as to why we can all just break out in any old song that we want. And then the third aspect in terms of argument is the contextual argument. Go back to 519. 518, but be filled with the Spirit. And one of the effects of having been filled with the Spirit is to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The speaking is designed to instruct and edify the people of God. Well, what better content to instruct and edify the people of God than the Word of God? And that's why when you compare Colossians 3, a very similar structure, only in 5.19 we've got, or 5.18, be filled with the Spirit and speak this way to your fellows. In Colossians 3.16, we have let the word of Christ richly dwell in you and speak this way to your fellows in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The speaking is derived from the divinely inspired word of God. 
It's like I said in 5.17, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The Old Testament is the will of the Lord in this context. The New Testament wasn't finished at this point. So when Paul says, understand what the will of the Lord is, that would have sent them back to their Bibles. It would have sent them back to the Old Testament. In particular, it would have probably sent them back to Proverbs. Because Proverbs is all about wisdom. It's all about Christ's school of wisdom and how we're supposed to navigate in this present evil age as blood-bought, spirit-filled children of God. The, the book of Proverbs provides for us a great framework or context for this understanding what the will of the Lord is. I don't think it's out of the ordinary to suggest that the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs that are, in fact, the psalms of David furnish the stuff by which we teach and admonish one another, by which we edify the saints as we sing praises to God. Yes, praise and prayer, but proclamation in terms of the horizontal emphasis of those who are filled with the Spirit and they are singing. They are doing this in the context of public worship with that divinely authorized word of God as the subject matter that does get into the hearts and the minds of God's people. We're singing the word of God. We're singing the scriptures back to God. Just as he has furnished us with a book specifically devoted to wisdom, so he has furnished us with a book specifically devoted to praise, to pra uh, prayer, and to proclamation. So three simple arguments that I think bear up under the rest of scripture to indicate that when Paul says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it's not a bad interpretation or take to understand him, meaning, uh, understand him to mean Psalm 1 to 150 is the subject matter for praise in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first effect. Notice the second, and this will be shorter because there's not arguments to make here. Notice, praise given to God. So if horizontally we speak in, uh, 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 we're speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, what's happening internally with reference to God Most High? See, when we come to worship, there's a couple of levels we need to consider. The vertical, we come to God, but the horizontal, we edify one another. I mean, it's not for naught that the church is the church, that it's a community. Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, Psalm 87. The Lord God loves to see his people gathered together corporately. So when we gather together corporately and we're see, uh, uh, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we're also singing and making melody in our hearts to God the Lord. Now, you don't have to try to figure this all out. Just sing and praise God and, and let the, the Spirit of God take it from there. You edify the saints, you worship and praise God. But notice the apostles' high Christology here in 519. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is Jesus Christ. This is the word who became flesh for us men and for our salvation. And notice, those filled with the Spirit will praise the Lord Jesus and will express thanks to God Most High. Turn back to 2, 18 and 22 to see that our worship is Trinitarian through and through. 2.18, for through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit to the Father. We come through the mediation of the Lord Christ. We come in the presence and the power of the Spirit, and we go to the Father. 
And then notice in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So we are being built together in Christ for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So it shouldn't surprise us to see this heavy emphasis on triunity here in Ephesians 5. We're filled with the Spirit, and that results in us in singing and making melody to God the Son. And then it expresses itself in our gratitude and thankfulness to God the Father. Christian worship is Trinitarian worship. This isn't just a one-off. The Trinity is everywhere in the Bible. And for us not to see that and not to appreciate that and not to incorporate it in, in Christian worship, it is not good. We should be markedly different than a Jewish synagogue. We should be markedly different from a Unitarian church. We should be markedly different from anybody who denies the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. We need to imbibe that. We need to appreciate that, that that's what Paul is saying. So he is saying that we sing, uh, uh, the singing of Psalms praises God the Son. And as we saw last Sunday night in our study in Psalm 22, to say that Jesus isn't in the Psalms is absolutely incorrect. It is positively wrong. Jesus in Psalm 22 tells us more about his time on the cross than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do. That's not to castigate Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it is to suggest that from the lens of Psalm 22, when we move up to Matthew chapter 27, we know that Christ is there according to his humanity, bearing the wrath and fury of God Almighty and encountering the beasts that are encircling him to destroy and devour him. The Psalms give us much of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the third effect with reference to being filled with the Spirit. He goes on to say, verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, filled with the Spirit, giving thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfulness is a constant refrain throughout Scripture. Thankfulness is obvious in the Psalms. Thankfulness is obvious in the New Testament epistles. Thankfulness is a frequent theme with the Apostle Paul. It's almost as if he is sort of foreshadowing that, that threefold division in the Heidelberg Catechism. Guilt, grace, and then what? Gratitude. Gratitude is the expression of praise and thanksgiving on the part of God's conquered people to our Most High for what He has done in the salvation of our hell-deserving souls. And then the final emphasis, or the final effect or manifestation of the presence power in the lives of God's people is the way that they'll relate to one another. Notice, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. I think what he means there is that we conduct ourselves in a manner that is consistent with Christianity. In Proverbs chapter 6, we read, There are six things that Yahweh hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And one of them is the, the, the feet that sow discord among the brethren. That discord is combated here by the apostle when he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Turn back to Ephesians 4, specifically at verse, uh, 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 verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, 
with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now notice, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Notice that, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Well, how do we do that? Well, according to verse 21 in chapter 5, we submit to one another in the fear of God. In other words, you're not the star of the show. This isn't a church that exists for your aggrandizement or your glory. It exists for the glory of God Almighty. It exists for the praise and honor of the Most High. And submitting to one another in the fear of God is just that posture of Christian endeavor wherein we treat one another with respect and as fellow heirs of the grace of life that Jesus has given to us. Now, 521 serves as a transition to 522 that ends in 530, well, actually 69. So he moves now to what we call the household code. So he gives this generic statement in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. But then he gives concrete, obvious illustrations of this in practical daily living. So from 522 to 533, he deals with the husband and wife relationship. So generally, we submit to one another in the fear of God, but specifically in the home, the wife is to be submissive to her husband. And God willing, we'll follow this out in the next couple of Sunday nights. And then notice he moves from there to the parent-child relationship. So again, the generic or general principle submitting to one another in the fear of God is, is applied concretely in each of these household relations. So with reference to children and parents, there is a submission and there is this sort of emphasis on the fear of God behind it. And then from uh, chapter 6, 5 to 9, you've got employees and employers. So this principle of submitting to one another in the fear of God isn't abstract, it's not just out there, but it affects us where we live here. And notice, just by way of a quick observation, that it's the Spirit's presence in our lives that helps us to facilitate compliance with what we find in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. In other words, if your marriage is a bit on the rocks, Pray to God for more presence and power of the Holy Spirit. If you're having trouble communicating, get on your knees together, hold hands, and seek God Most High for the provision of His Spirit. If you're having trouble with your child, he's a bit wayward or she's a bit off right now, pray to God for more of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing that very little do we do this. Very little do we reflect upon this, this resource and provision that God supplies so that we can engage in this submitting to one another in the fear of God. The Lord has provided us with the resources necessary to comply with his holy word. So that's the exposition. Just a couple of quick thoughts and then we'll conclude. First, well, this isn't on my notes, but first, after we finish Ephesians, we're going to spend some extended time on matters pertaining to worship. So I'm not sure how much longer we're going to be in Ephesians. I don't want to disrupt this study because I think the practicality in the next two chapters are necessary sort of uh, emphases for us in our, our present evil age. But I certainly want to deal with some matters of worship. Certainly psalms and singing and corporate worship and regulative principle and, and Lord's Supper and just a whole host of fun things. So pray that in the coming months, coming weeks and months, we'll be able to get some better insight as we try 
by God's grace, to regulate our church more closely to Holy Scripture. Now, having said that, the emphasis in our passage is on the necessity of wisdom. We're to walk in love, 5.1. We're to walk in light, 5.8. We're to walk in wisdom, 5.15. If we are not understanding what the will of the Lord is by a search of Holy Scripture, and for us, this means obviously the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, but it means the New Testament as well. How do we discern what the will of the Lord is? By searching the Scriptures. What's going to help us to navigate circumspectly in this present evil age? It's going to be the wisdom that God's holy word affords to us so that we know how to conduct ourselves. As well, we need to call upon God for the power of the Holy Spirit who promotes wisdom and his indwelling in the people of God results in some practical application of that wisdom in the way that they speak to one another, in the way that they sing and praise God, in the way that they express gratitude to God, and in the way that they submit to one another in the fear of God. As well, the singing of psalms in public worship. We're not going to make a decision tonight. No, you know, pick up your psalm book and tear out everything from 151 and following. The hope and the prayer is, is that you'll love to sing the Psalms. Love to sing the Psalms. They're Christocentric. They're about the themes of God's grace, redemption, power, vindication, glory. The Psalms take us through the whole gamut of human experience. One of the problems with modern hymnody is there is no imprecatory hymn. You've got a clear demarcation between the righteous and the godless in the book of Psalms. And the psalmist isn't afraid to sing about it. As well, lament. You get good books. You get the odd psalm or, or, or hymn written today that takes you a bit on that path of how difficult it is at times to be God's people. But not to the depth that David brings you. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God. See, we're just not that honest to admit that I'm down, I'm low. Now, hopefully you have a friend group with which or a family group that you're able to share that sort of thing. But typically in our prayer meetings, when anybody, you know, I ask, does anybody have a prayer request? I am so down in the depths. I am so much in despair. If anybody ever does that, I'd like to try to assure you we have a safe place here. I'm not trying to use weird words here, but we're not going to expose you or Facebook it or anything like that. The experience of God's people is, why art thou discountenanced, O my soul? Why are you downcast, O my soul? So the psalms of imprecation, absolutely crucial. The psalms of lament, absolutely crucial. The psalms of praise. The psalms rehearsing God's glory and his majesty and his power. The psalms rehearsing his, his great deliverance of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Again, just read through the Psalms. That's the best commendation to singing the Psalms in public worship. And then the final emphasis that I want to draw out of this in terms of a practical application is for any and all who are not saved. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by your doings. You're saved by God's grace. The emphasis is strong in the doctrinal portion of the book of Ephesians. It isn't our righteousness, it isn't our lawfulness, it isn't our merit that brought us to this place where we worship God in spirit and truth. It's his grace, it's his mercy, it's his loving kindness, and he abounds in it. 
In Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 7, he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, according to the riches of his grace. There is riches of grace in God. So if you are not a believer, my encouragement to you tonight is to believe, to look unto him in faith and receive the blessings that Christ has secured. Paul celebrates those in Ephesians 1.3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul was a sinner. Paul was the chief of sinner. And yet he's able to revel in the gift of God's grace, in the gift of justification by faith alone, sanctification and glorification. Same with any of us that are here. We're not heaven bound because we made a decision. We're not heaven bound because we reformed our lives. We're not heaven bound because we stopped doing those bad things. We're heaven bound because from heaven, he came and sought us. The Lord Christ took on our humanity, lived for us, died for us, and was raised again for us. And the Bible is very clear. Those who look to him in faith will have everlasting life. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glory and for your majesty. We thank you for the nature of Christian worship being Trinitarian. We're filled with the Spirit. We praise God the Son. We thank God the Father through the Son. It is a wonderful and a, and a glorious blessing that we receive each and every time that we gather together corporately. Go with us now. Grant us grace to walk circumspectly. Grant us grace to walk in love and to walk in light and to bring glory to you. And we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.